Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. Today we're discussing Batman Returns, the second Batman film directed by Tim Burton. It was released on June 19th, 1992. The writers involved this time were Sam Hamm, who got story credit on both of these first two movies. In this case, Daniel Waters rewrote the screenplay, who was a different person than the man who finished the screenplay last time. We do see some other people returning, aside from just Tim Burton. So Michael Keaton, Michael Gough, and Pat Hingle all return as Batman, Alfred, and Commissioner Gordon, respectively. Danny Elfman stays on as composer. Bob Badami stayed on as music editor, and he's got quite a number of movies to his credit as music editor, including Amazing Spider-Man 2 and 130 others. We also see the return of casting director Marion Doherty and production designer Bo Welch is involved. We do have a number of new people involved in this one, though. We've got a new cinematographer in Stefan Chapsky, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. We've got a new editor in Chris Lebenson. Stan Winston Studios were involved in the visual effects. And there's a lot of new members of the cast to go along with a lot of the new characters. We've got Danny DeVito as the Penguin or Oswald Cobblepot. We've got Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman or Selina Kyle. Christopher Walken as Max Schreck. Michael Murphy as the new mayor. So he's not really a recast. It's a different character in the mayor job this time. Christy Conaway as the Ice Princess. Andrew Brianarski as Chip Shrek, Vincent Schiavelli as the organ grinder, and he's one of those guys that you've probably seen in a number of movies, including Tomorrow Never Dies, Ghost, who unfortunately passed away young, Steve Whitting as Josh, Jen Hooks as Jen, Anna Katarina as the Poodle Lady, Doug Jones is in here as the Thin Clown, he's better known to comic fans these days as Abe Sapien in the live-action Hellboy films. And we also get cameos of Paul Rubens and Diane Salinger as the Penguin's parents. They tried to bring in Burgess Meredith to play the Penguin's father, but unfortunately his health was not up to it at that time. So instead they brought in the individuals from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and that was, of course, Tim Burton's big directorial debut. So the first Batman that Tim Burton directed worked amazingly well in every financial aspect, really except one, and that's toy sales. Now, it did respectively selling toys, but it didn't live up to the potential it had given where its box office was. And that wasn't because of a lack of characters. If you look at the characters who are in that first movie, you've got Batman, Joker, Bob the Goon, a bunch of those nameless thugs. You've got Bruce Wayne, Alfred, Vicky, Harvey Bullock, Harvey Dent, Alexander Knox. It is loaded with characters. But if you look at those that are physical enough to be appealing as action figures, you've got Batman, Joker, Bob the Goon, and a bunch of nameless thugs. So the studios didn't want more action figures this time around, and that's part of the reason we see more characters in it. Now, Tim Burton doesn't normally like to do sequels. He likes to do something new with each film. He agreed to do this one after Edward Scissorhands because he was allowed to make it a fairly standalone movie. So when he did the original, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was his only major directorial credit. So he didn't have a lot of pull with the studio. This time around, he had Pee-wee, the first Batman, and Edward Scissorhands to his name. So he was able to exert a little more control over the production and the story. And there's even a shift that goes along with that in addition to moving locations in terms of the tone of the script. So none of the original locations were used again. And that's probably the main reason Wayne Manor has had a complete makeover both inside and out. Instead of producing the film in Shepperton Studios in England as they had the first time, they brought it over to Burbank, California, and shot virtually the entire thing indoors. One of the reasons they had to do it indoors is because there's a lot of live penguins, so the sets were cooled to about the mid-30s Fahrenheit, or just 4 or 5 degrees Celsius, if that. And in constructing these indoor sets, expressionist choices are a lot more pronounced. 
Now, expressionism was a type of filmmaking that made the sets as much a part of the emotional tone as the performers. We touched on it in the previous podcast. One of the prominent early examples was 1922's Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Murnau and starring Max Schreck as the subject of one of the first copyright infringement lawsuits, basically. Max Schreck, that actor, inspired the name of Christopher Walken's character in this film quite clearly. Nosferatu is also quite clearly an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it's in many ways a more accurate adaptation than the 1931 version, despite changing the character names. And that's largely because the character names were virtually all they changed. So the estate of Bram Stoker went after them legally and won. This was a direct and blatant adaptation of Dracula, but it was also one of the early expressionist films. These movies made a lot of notable influences in the set design, going to extreme tones and looks because it was incorporating those emotional feels. The most prominent example of German expressionism is probably The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I do highly recommend. Like a lot of the early expressionist films, it is silent because it predates the synchronized sound technology, or at least predates it being popularized. At the time it was made... The Fleischer Studios were already using synchronized sound, although Disney was not. Steamboat Willie was not the first one, despite Disney's claims to the contrary that they've managed to get pretty popular here. But unfortunately, this shift in this sequel toward the expressionist tones, while it gives it a very clear look and very high marks on the technical side, it also means that the two Gothams really do feel like two completely different cities. And it's enough of a change that this movie doesn't mesh terribly well with the previous movie when you watch them back to back. On a script level, the focus shifts away from Batman. In the commentary, Burton discusses how that was meant to be symbolic and representative of the character's need for privacy. But instead, it feels almost like a cheat, denying the audience time with the title character of the movie they came to see. So instead, we spend a lot of time with the villains. What I'm going to do now is just go through a quick summary of each of the main villains and hero and their goals. The opening sequence takes place in the past. When we see Penguin as a baby, both during his birth, and then as a toddler being abandoned by his parents because of his physical deformities and pretty major mean streak. They abandoned him by dropping his wicker carriage into a stream at the zoo. I don't know how they would expect that to escape notice. A stream at the zoo is not like a riverbed that's got hundreds of miles or you know direct access to the ocean to dump what you put in there. This is usually a very closed system that is carefully monitored, frequently cleaned. This baby is going to be found in a matter of hours. It's not really a good way to get rid of him. Now, I understand maybe the goal was to drown him, but that's a shockingly airtight wicker basket. He manages to float all the way right to the penguin enclosure. We later learn that he was found and presumably sold to a circus. We know he was participating and performing in a circus as one of the freaks before he came back to Gotham claiming no knowledge of his heritage and playing the sympathy card to get access to the Hall of Records. Now we do learn that his real reason for wanting access to the Hall of Records is to find out the names of every firstborn son in Gotham because his plan is to take revenge on the people of Gotham by kidnapping every firstborn son. He's got most of the town enthralled, including Bruce Wayne the first time he sees him. He's saying, well, he hopes he finds his parents. The next time we see Bruce Wayne interacting with him, we haven't seen a lot of other public appearances by the Penguin, but suddenly Bruce doesn't trust him. There's no explanation why. Now, the next villain that we see introduced is Max Schreck, and he's pushing for the construction of a new power plant in a city that doesn't really need one. They have a power surplus. We eventually learn that his plant is actually designed to be a giant capacitor that will store electrical power. So I can't wrap my head around his plot and what his goals were. So first of all, you hook up a giant capacitor to the power grid, 
well, if people expect it to be a power plant and good luck building a power plant that's actually a capacitor and not having the construction teams notice. But when you connect it to a grid, you don't want two different power plants hooked up to the same grid feeding it. They burn each other out. So it's going to be set up on its own grid, which can be easily switched to another one for redundancy in case of fail-safes. But for, by and large, it's going to be on its own. So if you have something that doesn't produce power and just stores it, how do you expect that to not be noticed? There's not going to be a power source in your power grid. You're going to be trying to suck power that's not there because it's not being provided. Even if the fail-safes do kick in and you're drawing from other power plants, they're going to notice that immediately. Even with the power, I don't know what he's going to do with it. Once you have a capacitor fully charged, it starts to flow like a typical circuit or cuts off, depending on the design of the capacitor. And it stays there until you release the power. So once it's filled, what are you going to do with it? resell it to the city, but you're already trying to sell them power, so why sell them the power you stole? You're just going to have them shut you down instead of just selling the power in the first place. You can't blackmail the city because they started off with a surplus until you cheated them. They're just going to cut you off and shut you down again. He says the point of the plot is to gain power because that's his goal is just gain power. But power to a businessman like this is usually about the ability to have influence and convince other people to make the choices you want them to make. It's more about control than electrical power. This doesn't really seem to fit the bill. But as the mayor and Bruce Wayne are constantly blocking his plans, he's decided that he's going to groom the penguin and turn him into a new mayor and somehow control this and get the power plant built by controlling the penguin, even though the penguin has everything he needs to blackmail him. We also see that he has absolutely no compunctions about killing people. He killed his old partner. He tries to kill Selina Kyle, as we'll discuss more in a moment. And yet he seems to take no action whatsoever against Bruce Wayne, apart from some verbal sparring. So don't know why that is. The third villain is the one whose origin we see during the course of this story, and that's Selina Kyle, who becomes Catwoman. Now, this was originally cast as Annette Benning after going through a long list of others, but then Benning got pregnant shortly before the shoot and had to step aside. So Michelle Pfeiffer came in, and I have to say, as far as the performances are concerned, hers is the most impressive. We see the most range, because the script affords it, going from a completely subjugated woman as Shrek's secretary-slash-assistant to the empowered Catwoman. I don't understand why her character told Shrek that she had broken into the protected files and learned the real purpose of the power plant. I mean, I get why she did it to do the job, but when she realizes he's been lying to everyone, this is what's going on, why would she say she knows with no backup at all? I mean, it may be short-sighted, but anyway, she tells him and he pushes her out a window. Not sure how he covered up the fact that something clearly went through the window. I mean, the window was smashed, the awnings were torn, she lands on the ground. But after going through several awnings, she survives the impact. While she's on the ground, she's swarmed by cats who gnaw on her, lick her, and then, you know, suddenly her eyes flutter and open, and she gets up, walks away, still unstable, and essentially becomes Catwoman. So they're going for something mystical there. Tim Burton in the commentary says he's going for a mystical feel for the creation of Catwoman and the Nine Lives. But yeah, I... I don't see exactly how that makes her become Catwoman aside from being killed. It's just a psychological snap. So as far as I can tell, her only goal is to get the power and recognition and respect that she wanted. She starts living by her instincts and her base impulses in a more animal-like fashion. And if you don't worship her, then she will hurt you. She just wants to manipulate men into doing what she wants them to do. Batman has a couple of goals. One is to protect the city. That's not stated. It's just 
that's what he's doing when he finds out about trouble. He goes out there as Batman. His other goal seems to be his romantic interest in Selina Kyle. And that's about it. That's the only element that's really personal here. He doesn't even have a clear connection between Shrek and the Penguin to turn that sparring into something personal. So with that, we've only really got clear goals for one of these characters, and that's just Penguin lashing out in revenge at the society that abandoned him. Everybody else, they well, Shrek tells us what he wants to do, but that makes no sense. Selina Kyle never states what she wants to do. We kind of get a feel for it. Now, the casting and acting are all spectacular. So Michelle Pfeiffer is, as I said, the most impressive one, not just in the emotional range, but on the physical side. She genuinely learned how to use the whip and does most of the whip work herself on screen. So there's very little if digital effects or manipulation of that. There's a sequence where Catwoman has a live bird in her mouth for a few seconds. That wasn't CGI. Michelle Pfeiffer actually put the live bird in her mouth for a few seconds, held it, did the shot, and released it. And all this is on top of the costume constraints. We've spoken before about how uncomfortable the costumes were. There's even a major redesign on Batman's costume here, just to make it easier for Michael Keaton. The Catwoman costume apparently is a step down from Lee Merriweather. We talked earlier about how Lee Merriweather was trapped in her costume all day. They sewed her into it at the start of the shoot. So she was in, filmed the day, and then was out with not much downtime between. Michelle Pfeiffer was the flip side. She was only in her costume for a few minutes at a time. She wasn't sewn into it. They sewed it shut around her, but her time in it was limited because she physically could not stay in any longer. They actually vacuum sealed it, pumping out all the air between her and the costume, strapping it to her so tightly that she'd get lightheaded and pass out if she didn't get out from this costume every few minutes. So that's insane dedication to the craft. You would not know that in her performance, but when that movie was done, she was quite happy to never see that costume again, and I don't blame her. That sounds incredibly uncomfortable. Now, Shrek's character was well played by Christopher Walken, but he went through a few incarnations. In the original script by Sam Hamm, there was no Max Shrek. Instead, that was actually Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, who was completely dissatisfied with the current mayor and the way he was running things. And that mayor was shown to be a bad mayor, rather than the seemingly competent one we have here. He was trying to get rid of the bad mayor and didn't understand the threat of the penguin and what the penguin was really like and was just trying to put him in place. And then the end of the film, the explosion that fries him in electrocution, that was supposed to be the creation of Two-Face, which Billy Dee Williams had in his contract from the start was to be the actor who becomes Two-Face. The studio actually bought out Billy Dee Williams' contract for a fair amount of money and went in an entirely different direction for that character, as we'll discuss in more detail next month. They also changed the incarnation of the Penguin, so the source material has Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot as a very well-spoken upper-class individual. The world at large thinks he is really a legitimate businessman, and he's secretly the kingpin of Gotham's crime scene. Now, had his parents in this incarnation not abandoned him, that might have been what he grew up to be. Given how they handled the Joker in the last film, I could see why they didn't go completely in that direction. It would have been very much same old, same old. It would have been much more difficult to come up with a new story and make it feel like a different incarnation. The comics have never quite gone the route of the Penguin that this film did, although Batman the Animated Series was forced to. They hadn't aired yet. They didn't air until September of 92, but they were far into production as animation would tend to be. So they've got some episodes with the classic and eloquent comic book Penguin and some episodes with the movie Penguin because that's where they were in production when word came down from on high to change their their incarnation. This Catwoman is also different from any of the comic book incarnations that I'm currently familiar with, but I'm openly admitting she's gone through a lot of changes in the comics. I'm not familiar with all of them. There's a few periods of time in Batman's history that are just complete blind spots to me. 
So this could have been based on a direct incarnation from the comic books that I'm simply not aware of. Every incarnation I am aware of, she's sort of the downtrodden criminal, not really trying to hurt anybody, not really a villain, you know, sort of a more of a Robin Hood steal from the rich and give to the poor, except it's more steal from the rich, keep it for me. And occasionally acting as a hero, but that's mostly to get on Batman's good side because of the attraction that they have in the comics there. Now, in the original script, it was more of a direct sequel. So there was less of a romance in, involved between Bruce and Catwoman because Vicky was still involved and Bruce ended up proposing to her. Instead, in this movie, Vicky Vale's character is barely mentioned. Once, when Bruce talks about his ex with Selina on their first date, which as far as I know is never a good plan. And once when they take a pot shot at that major complaint about the first movie with Alfred bringing her into the Batcave. That's one of the few things that survived from Sam Hamm's original script. Now, I haven't seen Sam Hamm's original script. The finished version we have here, I would say, is poor. So two-thirds of our antagonists lack clear goals. The one we have clear goals for has access to things he shouldn't have access to. So yeah, I completely understand his revenge. It's not totally rational, but from a purely emotional respect of someone who was raised with no good upbringing, no clear guidance, I, I can totally accept it. What I can't accept is the fact that they just happened to get their hands on Batman's Batmobile blueprints so that they can tamper with and control the Batmobile. I have no idea how they'd get access to them. That's something that needs to be explained. After that, when Bruce and Alfred are talking about repairing the Batmobile, they're talking as though he doesn't already have a trustworthy mechanic in place. How do they get to the stage of the game without it? With the amount of vehicles he has, somebody's got to be building them. Whoever is building them in secret should be able to repair them in secret. Unless Batman killed them too. We know he sure killed off enough of them. He is a minor character as far as the ends of the villains goes. I mean, he defeats a few thugs, right? There's one guy that he sets on fire with the jet engine on the Batmobile. There's another guy that he's attaches dynamite to, and then smiles as he throws him down a hole right before he blows up. But when it comes to the big three, he was almost inconsequential. So the Penguin was ready to have these penguins assault the city, blow it up with all sorts of rockets. Batman took over the signal. What does he do? He activates the remote control, is unable to keep his hands on it when the Penguin takes it from him, and pushes the button, causing the Penguins to attack him. So the Penguin really is his own undoing here. Max Shrek is killed by Catwoman, and Catwoman escapes on the last of her nine lives. If you count losing one life when Shrek tries to kill her, losing the second life when she lands in the kitty litter, and then her other lives go when Shrek's shooting her at the end, and a revolver that has five bullets, you know, this adds up to all these lives. We've got a city that has been turned against Batman. They think he's killed the Ice Princess. They think he tried to mow down various pedestrians when his Batmobile was under the control of the Penguin. At no time does he publicly clear himself. Yet he reveals the Penguin's true nature to the public, but not in person. People can't guarantee it was Batman doing that. They don't understand why he was driving through the crowds like that, because he didn't release the entire video recording, as he should have, to reveal the Penguin and clear himself. They just know he's... Well, they know he stopped the kidnappers, maybe? Is that public knowledge? That's not made clear. So as an audience, we see what he's doing in the context of the movie... The Gothamites have lost trust in Batman rather quickly by jumping to some conclusions, and I see no reason for them to break up those conclusions. We also get a strong shift in tone with the scripts. It's a lot more humorous in some ways. It's very dark comedy. The kind of comedy that Joker was doing, that Jack Nicholson liked because he has no filter. That's now the level of comedy that is represented by every single character in the film, whether it's Batman, Shrek, Catwoman, Penguin, they're all at that level. There's a few things to like about this movie. The makeup and other production 
is excellent. So, you know, it's the kind of movie that would play out very well with just an isolated score. So you're getting all the visuals, you're getting the Danny Elfman music, and that's it. It'd be quite enjoyable. In terms of watching it, if you want to watch the Tim Burton Batman, rewatch the first one. This one, it's not abysmal, but there's very little scrutiny you can give to the plot before it all starts to fall apart. Now, in terms of the box office... Anytime we're dealing with a sequel, the strengths of the previous incarnation has a big impact on the opening weekend. It's not the only factor, as we'll discuss in a couple of months, but it is a big factor. Now, this one broke records. This broke the opening weekend record and would hold it until Jurassic Park came out the year later. The long-term box office totals are also quite respectable. It was certainly profitable. There's no question why Warner Brothers kept this franchise going. We basically have here a movie that is clearly inspired by the horror films of the 20s and 30s that Tim Burton loves. And those are the ones where the monster is front and center, and that's the main character. It's not about Batman here. There's even a line where Penguin basically tells the Batman, you're jealous of me because I'm a real freak and you have to wear a mask. And Batman says, well, you know, maybe you're right. And that's really the way this feels. Tim Burton is excited about the genuine freaks and not about the guy who just puts on the costume. So that's where the franchise is at now. Next month, we're going to talk about Batman Forever, which shows a completely new direction with a lot of new casting. Virtually everyone but Alfred is recast and a brand new director. So join us again next month when we talk about Batman Forever and we'll see where we go there. Thank you for listening.